Anyway, this actually brings me to the point of my, my opening of this show. I want to start out by talking about uh, a conversation that we had with the God King of the Daily Wire, Jeremy, uh, backstage at backstage. I don't think we were on the air when we were discussing this, but we were talking about the perception we sometimes get. We get emails and comments that the Daily Wire doesn't fight. And I get this, too. I get people, you don't you don't fight. You don't fight. And what that usually means is that I didn't support the latest, most urgent thing that happens to be going through people's minds. Uh, The idea that Donald Trump is the only one who can save us or some momentary panic that I have chosen not to participate in, uh, or just that I don't indulge, and I think most of us don't indulge here, in the kind of angry rhetoric that makes people feel good but doesn't actually accomplish anything. Uh, My main battlefield is the culture and making books and films and discussing books and films and bringing the arts into people's life is part of that fight. And if you don't think it's a fight, uh, I have the scars to prove it. I have millions of dollars in lost revenue, and I, I've told you I've been kicked out of Hollywood, and I, it's very hard to get my books reviewed and all this stuff. So it is, they obviously know that this is the battleground, and I am certainly not a wallflower, either in the things I say, obviously, uh, or in the things I write. And you can, you can read when Christmas comes, and you'll see what I mean. I want to explain exactly why I think this is the fight. This is the main fight. I want to get it very specific. I've been a gamer all my life. And hard as it may be for some of you to believe, but way back before there was uh, Final Fantasy 16, and and why is it Final Fantasy if there's always a sequel? I mean, that's one thing, but no. But before there was Final Fantasy 16, we used to sit around in the old cave around the fire, and we would move these things we called pieces around this kind of primitive pre-screen environment we called the game board. And one of the games I loved most was, was called Risk. And if you have never played Risk, we have a picture of it. It's, uh, you know, the board game, the board is a map of the world and you put your armies, actual plastic and wooden pieces, there it is, you put on, on the board and you get a certain number of countries and you try to take over the world. You have these battles with dice and you try to take over the world. Now I got, we used, my wife and I, Uh, when we were first together, we would invite people over the house for dinner and then we would play all night. We would literally play till dawn because it's a very long lasting game. And I got very good at this game and I would win almost all the time. And because of that, I started to, my attention would wander and I'd start to lose. And I would wind up with three armies in Australia. And you can see three armies was like the least number of armies you could actually have. And I would be in that little corner of the board on Australia. And I would wake up and say, oh my gosh, I'm losing the game. And I would come back and win. And this happened so often that my wife made a joke out of it. Whenever we were in trouble, uh, when no publishers would publish my work or when we ran out of money or we got thrown out of Hollywood, whatever it was, my wife would say to me, well, we've got three armies in Australia. You've got them right where you want them. Right now, if you love America, if you love freedom, if you love the West, if you love Christendom, which I do, the place formerly known as, as Christendom, We have got three armies in Australia. We are down to the last redoubt of sense and common sense and freedom-loving and patriotism. The left has burned down our cities. They've turned what's left of our cities into homeless and crime-ridden hellholes. They're hampering our fuel supplies. They tear down statues of freedom fighters like Thomas Jefferson and put up statues of drug taking criminals like George Floyd. Uh, They are censoring our speech using massive stateless corporations with no loyalty to anybody. They're corrupting young people sexually. They're teaching them not to be men and women. They slaughter babies in the womb. They denigrate free nations and true religion, and they elevate slave states and violent heresies. When Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said in the Bible, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, 
that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, the guy was a prophet and he was prophesying the coming of the modern Democrat Party because that's essentially that's their agenda, as far as I can tell. Now, I'm old enough so that none of this is worse, particularly in terms of action than other things I've seen in my life. When I was a kid, they killed the president. They killed the president's brother. They killed Martin Luther King. They shot Andy Warhol. They killed Malcolm X. You know, things were tough. Jane Fonda was supporting the Chinese communists. But the thing that's worse now is that the elites and the institutions have signed on to what is essentially a wicked agenda. The people who do these horrible things, dominate every center of power and influence, the universities, the entertainment media, the news media, corporate culture, the government. And that's new. That's different than when I was a kid, when there was actually an establishment that would try and kind of referee between the radicals and the the rest of the establishment. And so, of course, since they're an empire of lies, since the left basically in their culture is an empire of lies, they call themselves the resistance, even though they have all the power. They're not resisting anybody except us, except the people. It's the same as the, the people who have caused many black Americans to be killed call themselves Black Lives Matter. And the fascists who terrorize Portland and Seattle call themselves anti-fascists. And the filthy racism they want to teach our kids in school is called anti-racism. All of this is calling evil good and messing with the language. That's the culture. That's an attack on the culture. That's not a political attack, first and foremost. It's an attack on the culture. It's not The culture is not just the arts, though the arts are very important because they influence what we put in our head and what we think about and the stories we tell ourselves. But how we live, what we say, what we believe and don't believe, what we read and don't read, what we feel allowed to, to believe and allowed to say, all of that is at the center of the culture. And at the center of the left's culture, all the things I'm talking about, they are all about fear. They fear that you'll be canceled, fear that you'll be hateful, fear that you, if you live free, the climate will self-destruct, fear that if you'll be poor, if the government doesn't take care of you, oh, you know, and the minute you don't let the government take care of you, you're going to fall through the cracks, fear that you'll get a disease if you don't wear 17 masks. And in fact, if you're not afraid, you're a bad person. Fear is their virtue, right? Now, I'm going to read you something that I think will blow your mind in in its prophetic power, the fact that it was said so many years ago, back in another time when another country, England, was fading from prominence. C.S. Lewis, you know how much I like C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters that has, it's about a demon teaching another demon how to corrupt humankind. And here's what he says. He says, we, the demons, we have made men proud of most of their vices, but not of cowardice. Whenever we have almost succeeded In making them proud of cowardice, God permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity, and at once courage becomes so obviously lovely and important, even in human eyes, that all our work is undone, and there is still at least one vice of which people feel genuinely ashamed. That's what happened on 9-11, right? Remember, for a very brief time on 9-11, the left was essentially silenced. Suddenly, we remembered that men were men. It was men who charged up into the buildings and saved lives. Policemen were heroes. Firemen were heroes. They walked into the face of death to help people, and many of them didn't come back. And the beauty of their courage momentarily overwhelmed the left's lies and the beauty of our culture, the culture that produces such men, such courage, overwhelmed our the left's narrative that we are somehow the worst people on earth, that our beautiful country is a bad country and all these oppressive countries are somehow uh, you know, deserving of respect. 
Lewis says, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but it's the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means the point of highest reality. What he's saying is that without courage, you won't have virtue because virtue is tested. Virtue is going against, it's going against the uh, tenor of the times. It's going against the wave of public opinion. It's going against the opposite army. It requires courage, and that's when virtue hits the testing point, and that's when you find out if you have virtue. So if they can make you feel, be, if they can turn you into a coward, if the devil can do that, if the Democrats can do it, and at this point, what's the difference? They can stop you from being virtuous and therefore uh, take over politics for their wicked purposes, and they are wicked. So here's what they do. Because they can't make you proud of cowardice, because cowardice is so obviously ugly and courage is so obviously lovely, they trick you by wrapping you. This is still from C.S. Lewis. They trick you by wrapping you in precautions. Precautions, says C.S. Lewis, have a tendency to increase fear. So if you keep telling people, if you do this, the worst won't happen. If you do this, you'll be safe. If you do that, they don't realize they've become cowards until the moment comes when they have to have courage and they don't. So put on a mask, get a vaccine, get a booster, put on another mask, put on masks on your children, get boosters on your children, give vaccines to your children. Here's here's the mayor of New York, de Blasio, saying his ultimate goal is to mask children, get them vaccinated. Listen to this. At what point will you ask them to also start checking for vax cards for five to 11 year olds? That's a very good question, and honestly, one we need to focus on now. We wanted to get to the day where we actually could vaccinate the youngest New Yorkers and get that rolling. We know it'll take a while. I mean, right now, to use the example of the 12 to 17-year-olds, very good news, we're almost at 79% of them. That's fantastic, but it did take a while. You go to New York and people are afraid. I walked into a foyer, foyer, if you prefer, in Washington, D.C. that must have been it's a, a little bit bigger than this table. I'm not exaggerating. Maybe it's twice as big as this table. Really narrow little place. I had to get to a door to go down to the garage to get my car. Two people came, as I walked through the door, came screaming at me, put on a mask, not in authoritarian, uh, you know, oppressiveness, in terror, in terror. This is what they want. They want to build up your fear, wrap you in precautions so that when the moment of courage comes, the moment when you have to speak your mind, the moment when you have to defend your children at the PTA meeting, the moment when you have to say, no, I don't agree with you and I'm not a racist and go, you know, pound sand, that moment comes and you think, well, you know, maybe I'll get canceled. Maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe I won't get a good grade. Maybe, you know, because you are so wrapped in precautions, so used to thinking of how you can avoid the worst that you cannot face the penalty that virtue has to pay in this sinful world, especially when people like this have risen to power as now and then they do. It's part of the world. So the point of the Democrats and the object of the devil, but I repeat myself, is to make you afraid because then you won't have virtue to oppose their wickedness. When I talked about having three armies in Australia, Australia is you, okay? Australia is you. We are in deep trouble. Our leaders are doing a bad job. Our elites are liars. Our institutions are decayed. Our information outlets especially are clogged with lies. And so if you think that Donald Trump or the Vatican or the next election is going to save a country when people have no courage, when women have no virtue, when men have no honor, 
you're out of your minds. That's not going to happen. The first thing you have to do if you want to win the game of risk, and I'm an old risk player in every sense of the word, the first thing you have to do is secure Australia. Secure yourself. Make sure that you are defended. And you do that by taking in good things instead of bad things, by making sure that the art you consume is beautiful and great and not trash rap music. I mean, even if you listen to rap music, ironically, and it's about some woman being abused or some guy strutting around showing off his money and killing people and killing the police and slapping women around. You know, even if you listen to that ironically, it's poison. It is poison. If you're watching porn all the time, it's poison. It's toxic. And look, in every time, in every age, women have no virtue and men have no honor. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Because this is the fight, and we are in the fight, and they're not. They're not going to be a part of the fight. It's always going to be a minority. Just like it's a minority who are woke and wicked, it's going to be a minority who set the stage and, and set the uh, conditions in which freedom can return. And that's how I fight. That is how I fight, and that's why I fight where I do, because I, I believe that until we are who we have to be, we cannot expect anyone to come and rescue us. The people, I mean, to, to steal a line from Barack Obama, the people we're waiting for are us. And right now we are being bombarded with fear and we have to start to reinstall our courage and start to act in that courage if we're going to take the country back. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. He- Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. I found the summary of this uh, article, uh, but then uh, uh, sought out the long version. The long version is absolutely terrific. Um, it's on Barry Weiss's Substack uh, by Abigail Schreier, who's written a couple of books about transgender issues and that sort of thing, and has been painted as a transphobe and a hater and the rest of it. Well, she writes the books, and they're very popular and well-regarded, but they're not sold on Amazon. Right. Even though all she's asking is for data and responsibility and restraint and suggested that the whole transgender thing uh, in terms of uh, treating children has gotten out of control. Well, here's what she writes, and, and there's a punchline coming, and it's a big one. For nearly a decade, the vanguard of the transgender rights movement, doctors, activists, celebrities, transgender influencers, has defined the boundaries of the new orthodoxy surrounding transgender medical care. What's true? What's false? Which questions can and cannot be asked? They said it was perfectly safe to give children as young as nine puberty blockers and insisted that the effects of those blockers were fully reversible. They'd said it was an, uh, the job of medical professionals to help minors to transition. They said it was not their job to question the wisdom of transitioning and that anyone who did, including parents, was probably transphobic. They said any worries about a social conti- uh, contagion among teen girls was nonsense. And they never said anything about the distinct possibility that blocking puberty coupled with cross-sex hormones could inhibit a normal sex life. And then they talk about, uh, she talks about their allies in media and the Hollywood who, who repeated the orthodoxy and anyone who dared disagree or depart from any of the core tenets, including, by the way, young women who publicly detransitioned. Even they were inevitably smeared as hateful and accused of harming young children. 
But the new orthodoxy has gone too far, according to two of the most prominent providers in the field of transgender medicine, Dr. Marcy Bowers, world-renowned surgeon specialist, and Erica Anderson, clinical psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco's Child and Adolescent Gender Clinic. Now, here's the punchline. In their course of their careers, both have seen thousands of patients. Both are board members of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the organization that sets standards, and both are transgender women. Earlier this month, Anderson told me she submitted a co-authored op-ed to the New York Times warning that many transgender healthcare providers were treating kids recklessly. Oh, boy. The Times passed, explaining it's outside our coverage policies and priorities right now. Over the past few weeks, I've spoken at length to both women about the current direction of their field and, and where they feel it has gone wrong. Uh, on some issues, including their stance on puberty blockers, they raised concerns that appear to question the current health guidelines uh, set by that uh, the, that organization I told you about. Um, for instance, WPATH, WPATH, recommends that for many transgender, dysphoric, and gender nonconforming kids, hormonal puberty suppression begins at the early stages of pu- puberty. They've insisted since 2012 that puberty blockers are fully reversible interventions. When I asked Anderson if she believes that psychological effects of puberty blockers are reversible, she said, I'm not sure. When asked whether children in the early stages of puberty should be put on blockers, Bowers said, I am not a fan. When I asked Bowers if she still thought puberty blockers were a good idea from a surgical perspective, she said, this is typical of medicine. We zig and then we zag. And I think maybe we zigged a little too far left in some cases. I think there was naivete on the part of the pediatric endocrinologists who are proponents of early puberty blocking think that this magic, that this magic can happen, that surgeons can do anything. I asked Bowers whether she believed WPATH had been welcoming to a wide variety of doctors' viewpoints, including those concerned about risks, skeptical of puberty blockers, and maybe even critical of some of the surgical procedures. Quote, there are definitely people who are trying to keep out anyone who doesn't absolutely buy the party line that everything should be affirming and that there's no room for dissent. I think that's a mistake. It is almost without doubt, I think, that we're going to look back on this period like other periods in history, we look back on and we think, how the hell did that happen? How did that craze catch on? Uh, we're going to look back on this period of time when we were doing this to little kids and think, what the hell? It, it, you're absolutely right. It, this will be seen as a, a dark, dark age of abusing children, in my opinion. With all due respect to those uh, adults who decide to go ahead and do this, it's your, it's your decision. It's up to you. It's your life. Go live it. And I wish you nothing but health and happiness. But to do this to children, since nearly seven in ten children initially diagnosed with gender dysphoria eventually outgrow it or go on to become lesbian or gay adults, the conventional wisdom held that with a little patience, most kids would come to accept their bodies. The underlying assumption was that children didn't always know best. But over the last decade, watchful waiting has been supplanted by affirmative care, which assumes children do know best, and they ought to go ahead and authorize mutilating surgery on themselves. You know, my I got I got a kid that's got uh, all kinds of um, um, issues that he's dealing with and we're trying to deal with. I guarantee you, and he's trying to figure out, you know, a way to be happy. I guarantee you that if I'd have wanted to, started a couple of years ago, I could have convinced him, hey, here's what your problem is. You're actually a woman. Let's get this done. Yeah. And everything will be good. I know I could have convinced him of that if I wanted to do that. And you got parents doing that. 
And, you know, another aspect of this that I think is ironic and awful is, and, and it was referred to in that last paragraph that many go on to be lesbian or gay adults. You have a kid, a child, thinking, I don't feel like a boy, meaning like the other boys, or like I perceive a boy should feel. And then he gets put on the all-too-fast-moving uh, uh, conveyor belt of transgender mania. And all of a sudden, instead of realizing, oh, I'm an effeminate boy, I'm an effe- I will be an effeminate man, I'm attracted to men. Instead of that... Adults whisk him along and say, we need to, we need to carve up your body. We need to change. You're not a man. You're a woman, which is a weird and somewhat ironic insistence that there can't be girlish men, effeminate men, right. effeminate gay men. What are you talking about? I thought you people were like pro gay rights. And now anybody who dares express that they're an effeminate man, you want to carve them up? I'm uh, maybe this will happen over time because probably politically it's been difficult to do, but I'm surprised there's not more of a movement among, you know, the more effeminate end of gay men to say, hold on, wait a second. Yeah, you're right. You're right. By the way, the uh, use of puberty blockers can be traced to the Netherlands in the 90s. This uh, they cite this Peggy Cohen Katenis, a uh, psychologist in Amsterdam who helped to raise awareness about the potential benefits of blockers and pharmaceutical companies happy to fund studies and what's called the Dutch Protocol was born. The thinking was, why make a child who suffered with gender dysphoria since preschool endure puberty with all its discomforts and embarrassments if that child were likely to transition as a young adult? Researchers believe blockers' effects were reversible just in case the kid did not ultimately transition. Oh, boy. But this very psychologist later grew doubtful about that initial assessment. Quote, it is not clear yet how pubertal suppression will influence brain development, she wrote in 06. Well, at and least she, the experiments were only on children that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. This is unbelievable. Uh, you know, Dr. Savage often said uh, liberalism is a mental disorder. I think your hardcore progressive type these days who wants a suspension of the First Amendment. They want to, to, to whisk kids along on this surgery conveyor belt. Um, I could listen, list half a dozen other issues. I think they actually are troubled. They are delusional to the point that it's, it's a neurosis, at least. It is a mental disorder. Welcome to Waters World. I'm Jesse Waters. The truth about Joe Biden, that's the subject of tonight's Waters Words. I'm sick of beating around the bush. Time to call a spade a spade. Joe Biden is a horrible president. I've seen enough. On pace to be one of the worst of all time. Most of the country thinks he's incompetent. Democrats don't want him to run again. Everybody's disappointed. We didn't think it would be this bad this fast. Everything, and I mean Everything he says he's going to do, he doesn't do. And everything he says is true isn't true. This was his campaign pledge. I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm going to shut down the virus. He didn't shut down the virus, did he? Still clocking in over a thousand deaths a day. More deaths under Biden than Trump. And it feels like the economy shut down. Empty shelves, high prices and canceled flights. This summer, Biden said inflation was temporary. Most of the price increases we've seen are, were expected and are expected to be temporary. 
Wrong again, Joe. Inflation's rising at the fastest pace in 30 years and not looking back. In August, Joe said he was getting a handle on rising gas prices. We're uh, taking action to address gas prices as well. Biden didn't do anything. Can anybody name a thing Joe Biden did to try to reduce gas prices? If he did anything, it didn't work. The national average is up to nearly 3.50 a gallon. People are getting hurt. He said he'd open ports and fix the supply chain mess. This is across the board commitment to going to 24/7. So by increasing the number of late night hours of operation and opening up for less crowded hours when the goods can move faster, today's announcement has the potential to be a game changer. Nothing changed. Everything's still jammed up. Cargo ships from Asia still floating. Not enough truckers, lots of shortages, prices are rising. Vax mandates aren't helping. The vaccine Biden promised wouldn't be mandatory. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory. Why should we believe anything he says at this point? Joe said he wasn't going to leave any Americans behind in Afghanistan, remember? And if there are American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. Wrong. Hundreds of Americans stranded there, stranded in a foreign land on Veterans Day. But Biden brings millions of foreign nationals into our homeland. The steady stream of illegals flooding in after he was inaugurated. He says this happens every year. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months of January, February, March. It happens every year. It doesn't happen every year. Just every year, Joe's president. He smashed the all-time illegal alien entry record. Year's not even over yet. Way to go, Joe. Maybe instead of Kamala, Biden should put Hunter in charge of the border. After all, Joe says he's the smartest man he knows. He is the smartest man I know. I mean, in pure intellectual capacity. I am not concerned about any accusations been made against him. It's used to get to me. I think it's kind of foul play. Hunter is under federal investigation for Chinese money laundering and tax fraud. And while under investigation for money laundering, it looks like Hunter Biden, the artist, is laundering money by selling his own paintings to anonymous buyers. Hunter's paintings priced higher than signed Picasso's. Right. While the first families getting rich off the taxpayer are illegal alien families getting rich off the taxpayer, too. There were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report. Yeah. (laughs) Wrong again. Biden 180 and then said, yeah, we're planning on paying illegals. The DOJ is settling for millions, but it was Trump's fault. Biden said he'd never use his Department of Justice for political purposes like the way he said Trump did. The Justice Department under my administration will be totally independent of me. I will not direct them who to prosecute, how to prosecute, what to prosecute, and I will not be injecting I will not enter their decisions based upon the judgments they make about what cases they bring and they don't bring. 
Biden's Justice Department just raided James O'Keefe's apartment. Over what? Over Biden's daughter's missing diary. That sounds very independent of the president. I'm sure the president had nothing to do with federal agents hunting for his daughter's lost diary. Maybe if Biden's children would stop losing laptops and diaries, President Biden can save his party from disaster at the ballot box. We're going to win. I think we're going to win in Virginia. Not only doesn't he have the pulse of the people, we don't even know if he has a pulse. Not only did Joe pass out in the UK, apparently he passed something else in front of the royal family. It was long and loud and impossible to ignore, the source said. Camilla hasn't stopped talking about it. But America never got wind of this. Our media won't talk about a lot of what we just talked about here tonight. The Biden protection plan is killing the media. CNN's media show, Reliable Sources, is being beaten by reruns of Martin. Not new episodes of Martin, reruns. All I want to know is why Martin had a party and didn't invite me. I mean, I like the party. The people would rather watch reruns of Martin than watch the press carry Joe's water. And they better lift harder because Biden's underwater everywhere. He's at 38 percent approval in the latest poll. And that's with the media propping him up. Imagine if they treated Biden like Trump and Trump had slept through and stunk up his UK trip, then sent the feds to raid the home of a CNN reporter because Ivanka's diary was missing. Oh, and everybody was still dying from COVID and Don Jr. was under investigation for tax fraud and gas was twice as pricey. If it were that bad for my guy, I'd be watching reruns of Martin, too. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else. We sort of joke about woke because it is so preposterous. And it's so stupid. I mean, the idea that merely by saying, I want to be a woman, I am a woman. You know, this is, again, it's religious. Uh, Francis, it literally is religious. I and mean, it is the equivalent of the priest saying hoc es corpus. I mean, the word transubstantiation and the word tra- transsexual, it's the same word. You're trying to change one thing into another merely by words. It's incantatory. It's magic. Now, this, this reversion, to religious primitivism, this giving language priority over fact, feeling priority over fact, is it's a deliberate reaction against modernity, against progress, against science, against everything that has made our lives better, longer, healthier, more comfortable than the lives of any human freer than the lives of any human beings before. And so it is really an attempt at destroying everything. And it's purely destructive. At least communism thought it had an alternative. This has no alternative. You know, these extraordinary people like, like Professor, whatever you call Bhopal, at uh, the college opposite, my, my former college at Cambridge, uh, 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 at Churchill College, uh, you know, that, that, that she wants to see the disappearance of whiteness. Now, if that's not an invocation to genocide, I really don't know what is. I mean, w- destroy white values. Now, so, you know, people on BBC television, mainstream television, the Orusogras of this world, want apparently to destroy whiteness. Now, what does that actually mean? 
It means if you're being polite, they want to destroy a culture. Well, I think that's called cultural genocide. Mm. But how do you destroy a culture without destroying people unless you put them in a concentration camp? This, you know, see, nobody bothers to interrogate this language. Nobody puts them on the spot. Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero. Mr. Reagan. Kyle Rittenhouse stood up against a hostile mob in order to put out the fires of arsonists in order to save family businesses when police stood down. Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero, period. And furthermore, he is exceptionally brave. Because you know what? True bravery is not just the ability to do something that other people can't do. Sure, sometimes that is bravery, okay. But a more profound type of bravery, I believe, is when a man does something that needs to be done, that must be done, even though that man is afraid to do it. Kyle Rittenhouse broke down on the witness stand, not because he was weak, but because he was overwhelmed by what he had gone through. And he came out of that attack alive. Kyle Rittenhouse did what had to be done. And when he broke down in that courtroom, that showed me that in his memory, he was overwhelmed by what had happened. Because probably on that day, he was being overwhelmed by what was happening to him. And yet, he still did what needed to be done. To me, that shows great bravery. That shows great heroism. Leftists on Twitter saw Kyle Rittenhouse break down in the courtroom, overwhelmed by what had happened to him, and they mocked him for it. These people disgust me. In particular, some on Twitter made jokes about Kyle Rittenhouse being sodomized in prison. This is a tweet that went viral. I believe the woman who posted it has now deleted her account I mean, I can't find her account anywhere. Naturally, she would have received a lot of pushback on this tweet. But you know what? She's not the only one posting stuff like this. There are dozens, maybe hundreds, of twisted leftists posting tweets like this. Some leftists are saying that they think that Kyle Rittenhouse faked his witness stand breakdown. The human filth called LeBron James hypothesized that Kyle Rittenhouse used lemonhead candies in order to affect the look that he had while breaking down on the witness stand. LeBron James, the great defender of the Chinese government. There are few public figures that I find more revolting than LeBron James. Ironically, the first attacker that Rittenhouse shot, Joseph Rosenbaum, was a child rapist. In fact, he was a serial child rapist of young boys, three of which I read were ages nine and 11. So this guy wasn't just a bad dude. He was the worst kind of human filth. And consider that Kyle Rittenhouse was just 17, a minor, when he shot Joseph Rosenbaum. The irony is poetic. And Kyle Rittenhouse being 17 is an extremely important point, more broadly speaking. These men attacked a 17 year old. And this is even more profound when you consider that he doesn't actually look 17. He looks like he's maybe 15. The point being, Kyle Rittenhouse does not look intimidating. He's not a big dude. He's the kind of guy that a bully might target 
to pick on. Um, I felt like as young as he looked and what the way he was, the, just the general way he was carrying himself, the protesters would have seen that as a weakness and tried to exploit that. These thugs that attacked Kyle Rittenhouse, they were bullies. They were bullies who thought that Kyle Rittenhouse was a lame baby antelope that got separated from the herd. But it was their mistake to think that. Because in reality, Kyle Rittenhouse was more than capable of defending himself. Some might even call him a badass. And that's probably in part why leftists are so upset. They thought that they attacked somebody vulnerable. But they actually attacked somebody very dangerous. And now they feel deceived. But Kyle doesn't have a baby face by choice. The deception was not intentional, it was incidental. And so this should serve as a warning to leftist thugs everywhere, BLM, Antifa, whatever. Do not attack conservative men. No matter how young, inexperienced, or vulnerable they may look, a conservative man can be very dangerous when attacked. Leftists hate this. They want to be the dominant ones in society. They want conservatives to live in fear of them, not the other way around. And if they can't kill us physically, well then they want to lock us up for defending ourselves. And the prosecution appears to have gotten this message. Because you know what? They never should have brought this case to trial in the first place. And since they have, they have been repeatedly humiliated throughout this trial. One of their witnesses said that he even heard Joseph Rosenbaum, the first Rittenhouse attacker, say that he was going to kill Rittenhouse. Did you personally have any interactions with Mr. Rosenbaum? I got between him and Colette at one point, and then he threatened me and the defendant. I stepped in and told everybody, chill out, calm down, stop doing that. I turned and had an exchange with one of the protesters. And when I turned around, Rosenbaum was right there in front of my face, yelling and screaming. And I would say, dude, back up, just chill. I don't know what your problem is. And he goes, you know what? If I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm gonna kill you. And he said that to you? Correct. Did he say that to the defendant as well? The defendant was there, so yes. And now the prosecution should have known that this was gonna come out in court, and yet they decided to prosecute anyway. And I believe that the reason is simple. The prosecution is leftist, and they want to appease their leftist friends. They don't seem to care at all about the truth. Throughout this case, they have been intentionally trying to deceive the jury and the public. Here is the opening statement by the prosecution. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The evidence in this case will show that on the night of August 25th, 2020, here in our community of Kenosha, the defendant Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17 years old at the time, had armed himself with an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle loaded with 30 rounds in the magazine. And using that rifle, he shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, an unarmed man. The shot that killed Mr. Rosenbaum was a shot to the back. This occurred after the defendant chased down Mr. Rosenbaum and confronted him while wielding that AR-15. The prosecutor's opening statement describes Kyle Rittenhouse's actions as having chased a man down and shot him in the back. That's the image that they wanted to burn to the minds of the jury members and the public. They wanted people to picture Rittenhouse 
chasing a man down and shooting him in the back. Of course we know that is not what happened. And they too knew that that wasn't what happened. And yet that's how they characterized it. This is beyond doing their duty as a prosecutor. This is twisting reality in order to deceive. This is beyond just laying out the facts. This is a deliberate attempt to deceive people. The detective that the prosecution called as a witness stated while on the witness stand that he is neutral, that he doesn't take sides. He said that he refers to himself as a fact finder. If I said that a detective is really kind of a truth seeker, you don't care which way the evidence goes, you just want to get it right. Would that be fair? Yeah, throughout the investigation, we referred to ourselves as the fact finders. So you're not supposed to, and I'm not saying you are, you're not supposed to take sides, correct? You're just supposed to, wherever the evidence leads you, you go. Correct, we remain neutral. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that he is neutral. There is a variety of motivations for the police and the prosecutors to try to convict Kyle Rittenhouse. One, I think all of these people are a-hole Democrats and they want to impress their Democrat friends. Two, you've got this whole leftist mob that for some reason politicians, prosecutors, and even some police offices seem to bow to. And three, they've chosen to arrest Kyle Rittenhouse. They've chosen to prosecute Kyle Rittenhouse. And they've chosen to try to characterize him as a villain. Because of these decisions, they probably now feel locked in. They now want a conviction because that will justify their mistreatment of Kyle Rittenhouse. Basically, they don't want to admit that they were wrong. But they are wrong. They're obviously wrong. It's astonishing how wrong they are and how obvious it is. Probably the most striking moment of the entire trial was when the star witness for the prosecution, Gage Grosskreutz, admitted that he was the aggressor when he was shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Grosskreutz admitted to pointing his gun at Rittenhouse before getting shot. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him, with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. This testimony was so devastating that one of the prosecutors dropped his head down toward his desk and put his hand up against it, shielding his eyes. Was it shame? Was it humiliation? Was it just defeat? It probably was all three. When this testimony was broadcast, Twitter blew up. Everybody was posting this moment. Case closed, trial over, Kyle Rittenhouse totally exonerated. And they're right, Kyle Rittenhouse is innocent. And you may have heard another striking fact of this case, a bizarre turn. The detective in the case testified that Assistant District Attorney Binger, the douchebag prosecuting the case, advised the police not to execute a warrant to search the phone of Gage Grosskreutz. Now, if you're a fact finder, why would you not search that phone? This could provide evidence both to incriminate Grosskreutz and to exonerate Rittenhouse. So you have two motivations for searching that phone. The only motivation not to search the phone is biased against Rittenhouse, a desire to ignore evidence, a desire to hide the truth, a desire to convict Rittenhouse based on a lie. And here's the part you may not have heard. And this is a question posed by the Gateway Pundit, and it's a very good question. They asked, why has the district attorney's office not charged Gage Grosskreutz with anything? It appears that he's guilty of carrying an unregistered concealed weapon, brandishing that weapon, and 
attempted murder. And yet, they've charged him with none of those crimes. So I'm not really sure what the answer to this question is, but it appears that the district attorney's office over there in Kenosha made a deal with Gage Grosskreutz. Again, this is the man who pointed his gun at Kyle Rittenhouse's head. It looks like they made a deal with this guy. They would not prosecute him if he agreed to testify against Kyle Rittenhouse. That's what it looks like. It looks like they agreed not to charge the attacker if he agreed to testify against the man he attacked. Unbelievable. Now, there are some who have speculated that the prosecution in this case seems so incompetent that perhaps they might be trying to lose this case. They may recognize that Kyle Rittenhouse is innocent. And the theory is that they're trying to throw the case in order for justice to be served. But that's absurd. If they wanted to lose the case, they would not have tried secretly to coerce a journalist into changing his testimony. They would not have tried to mislead the jury and the public multiple times. They would not have inappropriately tried to use Rittenhouse's invocation of his right to remain silent against him. No, these prosecutors do not want to lose this case. They're losing this case because they have no case. Kyle Rittenhouse is innocent. Now that's not to say that their deceptions have been totally ineffective. Anna Kasparian thought that Kyle Rittenhouse was the aggressor. Now what really mattered to me was how all of this unfolded. What was the thing that sparked it? What started all of it? And initially I was under the assumption that Rittenhouse was the person who was chasing after Joseph Rosenbaum, that, that that's how it had started. But I was wrong about that, okay? So I wanna correct the record, I was in fact wrong about that. Other leftists were under the impression that Kyle Rittenhouse killed black men. And since learning that Rittenhouse's attackers were white, many black activists have said that it's actually a good thing that they were killed or that they no longer care about the case. Throughout this prosecution, the assistant district attorney, Binger, has shown himself to be a real douche. He keeps playing all these dirty tricks. Look, a, a prosecutor should be facts only. Right, facts only. You shouldn't be playing all these dirty tricks to try to convict somebody. Either the guy's guilty or he's innocent. You don't have to play dirty tricks. You don't have to try to deceive people. I mean, he targeted Rittenhouse's right to remain silent. The judge was so pissed off at that, by the way, that he lashed out at this guy. You are already, you were, I, I was astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post arrest silence. That's basic law, it's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. I have no idea why you would do something like that. And it gives, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So I don't know what you're up to. And as I said before, Binger asked a reporter to change his testimony. And we asked if you knew anything beyond that statement. Correct. We didn't ask you to change it. You, yes, you did. This prosecution is not neutral. These people are not presenting facts. These people are trying to convict through deception. But it's worse than that, okay? The nephew of George Floyd, a guy named Cortez Rice, apparently, has reportedly weighed in on this case. Now, he has suggested that the jurors will be held accountable 
if they do not convict Rittenhouse. I ain't even gonna name the people that I know that's up in the, in the Kenosha, I mean, in the Kenosha trial, but there's cameras in there. It's definitely cameras up in there and there's definitely people taking pictures of the juries and everything like that. We know what's going on. So we need the same results, man. We need the same results. Justice for Dante Wright, justice for Austin. So what this guy just said, what this guy just said on video and published to the world, this is called jury intimidation. And this is a very serious crime. Of course, they won't be arresting, charging, or trying Cortez Rice with any crime at all because our judicial system does not work like that anymore. You only get arrested and charged and tried for crimes if you're a white 17-year-old male who's done nothing wrong, apparently. Another absurdity of this trial is the, the attacks on the judge, Bruce Schroeder, who is clearly a good man. The other day, the judge's ringtone outed him as a country music fan and likely a patriot. The judge's ringtone is the song, God Bless the USA. Now, this is a patriotic song, but it's also a song that was played at Trump rallies. And so the left has pounced on this as evidence that the judge must be a patriot. And so he must be a Republican. And so he must be a Trump supporter. And so of course, he must be a white The judge is also under attack for making a joke about the supply chain. Uh, this is real. This is really happening. The judge said that, that lunch was late probably because it was still on a boat floating off uh, the Long Beach Harbor waiting to be unloaded. According to leftists, this is... <laughs> be okay. <laughs> According to leftists, because the judge had ordered Chinese food, this, was, this joke was somehow racist. <laughs> Does he need to make jokes about Asian food not arriving? You know, because it's on a boat in, on Long Beach in California, whether he was being, you know, racist towards Asians or insensitive or not, he's making jokes about the supply chain. It does not compute. Apparently, supply chain jokes are now proof of white supremacy. The leftists are also having a fit because the judge stated that those killed by Rittenhouse should not be referred to as victims. Leftists are incensed because they see this as bias in favor of Rittenhouse. But what these idiots fail to realize is that that's how our judicial system works, or that's how it's supposed to work in America anyway. We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. This whole trial is about whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse was defending himself or viciously hunting down victims. If it's proved that he was hunting these men down, he's a murderer, and the men that he killed are his victims. But if he was defending himself, then they are the aggressors, and he was the victim. That's the entire point of this case. But because these BLM degenerates have already decided that Rittenhouse is guilty, in their minds, the judge demanding that the rhetoric remain neutral in compliance with the innocent until proven guilty standard, well, he's somehow biased, and probably a white Many in the media have, of course, called Rittenhouse a white supremacist. Even Joe Biden himself made this claim. Rittenhouse is, of course, not a white supremacist. This is absurd. There is no evidence of that whatsoever, and nobody with any sense thinks this. Kyle Rittenhouse's mother was naturally upset by this, and she says that Joe Biden defamed her son. When I saw that, I wasn't shocked. I was angry. I was so angry for a while at him. And what he did to my son, he defamed him. I hope that they sue Joe Biden. I hope they sue him for every penny that he siphoned out of Ukraine. Don Lemon actually said that had Rittenhouse been a black teen, 
that he would be treated worse. Imagine <laughs> if Kyle Rittenhouse was an 18 or 17-year-old black kid. Well, that's a different issue. What with a gun. That? Talk about that. Right. How would people feel? How would the judge treat him if a black kid did that? Kill two people and injured another person. How would America feel about that? The irony is that did happen just last month. We actually have an example of this very thing. A black 17-year-old, Timothy George Simpkins, shot three people at his school, a teacher and two other students. But there are two differences between these cases. One, Timothy Simpkins was clearly not acting in self-defense, and two, Rittenhouse spent two months in jail. Simpkins, on the other hand, was released on bail the very next day. Calvin Pettit, the English teacher who was shot, had jumped in to break up the fight. Simpkins shot him in the back, shattering his ribs and collapsing his lung. This kid was shooting to kill, and yet released the day after. And I don't know if race had anything to do with the judge's decision here, but I can tell you this. Timothy George Simpkins was not released the very next day because he was white. Cal Rittenhouse, on the other hand, spent 87 days in jail and was only released after Good Samaritans raised the $2 million bail. And again, I don't know how much of Kyle's race went into the district attorney's decision to try him, his hostile treatment by the police and the prosecutors, his jail time, or his absurdly high bail number. But I can tell you this, he certainly didn't endure any of that abuse because he was black. Now, anyone with any sense can see this. And this is why this meme has gone viral. The meme is wrong, actually. Simpkins only shot three people. Another teacher, a pregnant woman, fell and was injured in the scuffle after Simpkins started firing. Nevertheless, four people were injured when Simpkins started firing at people in his school. This is America today, ladies and gentlemen. This is the justice that we get. There is no more white privilege as there was maybe 70 years ago. We've now replaced this with a new form of injustice, black privilege. Race had nothing to do with any of this on the part of Rittenhouse, but perhaps it did on the part of his attackers. Maybe they thought that Rittenhouse was some kind of white supremacist, as the BLM writers like to call anyone that they disagree with. And perhaps it was a factor in facilitating these riots in the first place. Consider that this only happened because the police stood down. This was BLM after all. And at the time, every leftist government official seemed to think that arson, vandalism, uh, assault, if it was in the name of George Floyd, a criminal, well, then those things are merely a form of mostly peaceful protest. Or in this case, Jacob Blake, also a criminal, who was shot by police after he picked up a knife while being detained by officers, presumably with the intent of stabbing them. And so because these mostly peaceful protesters were rioting in the name of black criminals who had been shot by police, the police just stood by and watched Kenosha burn. The police did not do their job. Instead, they obeyed the mob. An inappropriate deference to race-baiting political activists caused all of this. And you know what? Even after Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted, and I do believe that he will be, Justice will still have been perverted. Cal Rittenhouse should never have been tried. This was an open and shut case. It was clear from the beginning that it was self-defense and it should have been dismissed by the district attorney, but they wanted to send a message. The message they wanted to send, conservatives are bad guys. BLM activists are good guys. Anybody who interferes with the woke mob will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and convicted. We're gonna lock you in prison and we're gonna throw away the key. Well. That backfired, didn't it? This case has shown that the left are just a bunch of liars 
and they will prosecute you even if you were innocent. And it also shows that at least one innocent conservative that is being persecuted by the left is a good man. And despite the fact that a lot of leftists on Twitter, a lot of leftists in the media on CNN are talking about Kyle Rittenhouse as, as if he's some kind of a monster, I do believe that a lot of people that are independent-minded, a lot of people that are maybe right-leaning Democrats, they're going to see that that kid is innocent. And they're going to realize that their party is a bunch of frauds. And just one more thing. To all those who say Kyle Rittenhouse should not have been there, that he was just looking for trouble, that he put himself into a dangerous situation, that he knew that he would aggravate the protesters, all that crap. The same thing could be said of any police officer who stops any crime. This is the same idiotic thinking that has allowed shoplifters to run rampant in San Francisco and other so-called progressive cities. This is the same idiotic thinking that has caused these same cities to defund their police forces, leaving them utterly deficient of an adequate police force and allowed crime levels to skyrocket, including murder. So yeah, sometimes a man has to put himself in harm's way. That's what being a man is all about. And 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was more of a man than the police officers who stood by and watched Kenosha burn. And then, of course, they blasted Kyle Rittenhouse with pepper spray after he went out and defended it. Kyle Rittenhouse is a hell of a lot better than those so-called men. The real crime is that more patriots in Kenosha didn't join Kyle to stop the rioters. The truth, ladies and gentlemen, is that Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just they know so much that is not so. Good night. This is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, therein lies the road to war. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery.